You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Hi everybody, I'm Christina, for those I haven't met, um, and I'm excited to read the Bible this afternoon. So as Aaron said, we're in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what is what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win respect of others and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. G'day everyone, Uh, I'm Tim. Uh, It's great to be here with you and to spend this uh, time in God's word. As Aaron said at the start, um, if you weren't here last school holidays, we started a small mini sermon series in 1 Thessalonians, uh, which we're going to pick up again this week and the next following weeks. Uh, So I encourage you throughout this week uh, to have a read through the letter and listen to the sermons online. But before we get into today's passage, uh, let us talk to God in prayer. Father God, uh, thank you for your word that you have chosen this passage for this afternoon for us. And I pray that your spirit would be at work building up your church. Help me in my weakness to proclaim uh, your wisdom, the gospel of your son crucified for us, to bring us into relationship with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Who are you living to please? I'm a big people pleaser. I can feel like my worth and value comes from others' acceptance and approval of me. I find myself constantly trying to work out what people want from me, who they want me to be, and I try to change who I am in order to meet that. I try to live to please everyone. Sometimes this works, and people might like the version of me that I put forward, um, but most of the time I find it crushing. It's too much pressure, and I end up hiding from everyone instead. I remember when I first moved to Melbourne for uni, I I met a bunch of new people. I moved on to residential college, Uh, I got involved with the Christian Union group, and I started coming along here to DPC. I didn't know what all these different groups wanted from me, who I should be, and it stressed me out. How was I going to get everyone's approval? 
I remember my first Christian Union event at La Trobe. I remember anxiously arriving early, taking a seat in, an empty, in a circle of empty chairs. Uh, but not long after I sat down, a friendly, bubbly second year came and sat next to me and started asking me get-to-know-you questions. Uh, what sort of music I liked, if I had any hobbies, if I played or f uh, followed any sport. Uh, and I didn't know what answers to give that would win her approval. So I didn't say much. I was pretty vague. I said I liked most music, didn't really have any hobbies and sometimes watched footy. Then eventually the room filled up and I was able to hide in the crowd. Are you like me? Does it feel like you have to please everyone? Or who are you trying to live to please? Maybe it's your parents. Uh, they drive your life. Oh, what drives your life is meeting their expectations of you. It's why you study hard. They're the reason you're working where you are. When things go well, they're the first person you want to tell. But when something bad happens, when you mess up, it's their judgment that you fear. Um, or maybe you feel the pressure of living online and projecting a perfect life, having to always smile and say everything's okay uh, because you need to have it all together. Or maybe you live to please your boss or co-workers. You need to be seen as someone who contributes more than anyone else. Uh, your work spills out into every aspect of your life and you're constantly working overtime so that people might be impressed with you, with your work, work ethic. Or maybe it's even church that you're living to please. Um, you're always on time, you never miss a Sunday. You shape who you are so that your church family here thinks that you're the perfect Christian. Whoever you're living to please will guide how you live. It will determine what you study, what you spend money on, where you work and where you live. Even how you answer get to know you questions. It ends up driving your life. But where does God fit into how you live and who you're living to please? Paul says in this chapter that we are to live to please God. That knowing God and being a part of his family leads us to live a life of love that pleases him. Paul starts chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians by saying, Brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. What does it mean to live to please God? Do you think Paul is saying here that we need to treat God the way I tend to treat people? That living as a Christian is trying to convince God that you're good enough to be accepted? I think that's how some of us live as Christians. We will have a line in our lives between good and evil, right and wrong. To be above the line is to be pleasing to God, and to be below the line is to be displeasing. When we treat God as someone we need to win over, we end up living our lives on trial, trying to prove that we're good enough, trying to get ourselves over the line. You pray and read the Bible so that you might be accepted. Uh, you come to church, you pack up chairs so, so that you might please God and make up for any mistakes you've made throughout the week. However, let me suggest that this isn't living to please God. Instead, it's trying to appease God. Do you see the difference? Appease means to satisfy a demand or a feeling. Paul isn't saying that we need to relieve or satisfy some sort of demand or guilt from God. It's not about racking up brownie points uh, with God by following his rules. Plenty of people can be religious, they can go to church, they can give to charity so that God might hear them, might help them, 
or even just to feel good about themselves. That's to live to appease God. And I think, similar to my people-pleasing tendencies, living to appease God is crushing. We look inwards at ourselves, our weaknesses and shame, and know that we can't be enough to please God. We can't get ourselves above the line and be accepted by him. So instead, we end up hiding from him. So let's take a step back and look at how Paul addresses the Thessalonians. In verse 1, he calls them brothers and sisters. Why? Paul is not biologically related to this group of Christians. However, he calls them brothers and sisters because they've all experienced the same adoption into a new family, God's family. In John 1, uh, 12 to 13, it says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. By receiving Jesus, God's son, we receive the right to become God's children. By addressing the church as brothers and sisters, Paul is reminding us who God is, that he's relational that we've already been adopted into his family and that living to please him is not because we need to work our way into heaven or into God's good books. We don't need to appease him because God doesn't need us to please him so that he can feel good about himself because he has welcomed us into his family that he's enjoyed forever. Before the creation of the world, God has always been in a perfect loving family, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, creating us to be a part of that family from abundant love, not from a place of need. I grew up going to church, hearing about God's holiness, the heroes of the Bible, and my sin. I believe Jesus died to forgive my sin, but I also felt the pressure to be a perfect Christian. I treated God the way I sometimes treat people. I tried to work to get myself above the line, uh, from a life that is displeasing to God to a life that might please him. And it was crushing. When I made mistakes, I felt like I could no longer go to God. I'd let him down. But when I'd read my Bible and was nice to people, I felt worthy and proud. My life was up and down. Till I remember one little Bible study group at uni, I was asked if I was a sinner or a saint. I hesitantly said both. I was then asked if I believed Jesus had died for all of my sins. I said something like, yes, but I still mess up. I need to be better. Um, I wonder if you've ever felt like that. Uh, But yes, Jesus died for you, but now it's on you to make yourself worthy. Uh, On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. Uh, Through the cross, all of my sins have been dealt with. All of your sins have been dealt with. I'm brought into the family as a son, and that is secure. God doesn't then leave us. He's constantly at work in me, bringing me closer into himself and teaching me what it means to live with him. And experiencing God's acceptance and adoption into his family changes how I deal with people. Um, The gift of God's child uh, gives me such security in my identity that I don't have to earn uh, my identity from people's uh, acceptance of me or approval of me. Uh, Instead, it frees me to live a life of love, or the language Paul uses here, a holy life. A life shaped by the cross, a life pleasing to God. What does that look like? What does it look like to live a life that pleases God? Paul continues in verse 3 saying, It's God's will that you should be sanctified, which is a very big religious sounding word. What does it mean? To be sanctified is to be set apart, 
for a particular or special purpose. Think of Hillsville Sanctuary, which is land that has been set apart for the safety of the animals that are there. Uh, what does it mean for the Thessalonians uh, and us as Christians to be sanctified or set apart? God created humanity to be in relationship with him, to be a part of his family. However, we have all rejected him. We have said and lived in ways that break this relationship with God. We are all below the line, separated from God. And if, this, if the relationship is to be restored, something needs to happen, which is why God is sanctifying us. He is setting us apart so that we can be in relationship with him, bringing back into his life and, uh, life and family. He lifts us above the line. And there is a past, present and future element of this sanctification. Um, which we see throughout God's word and throughout this letter to the Thessalonians. The past, it has already happened. We have been sanctified. Uh, as I said, we've all been cut off from God. We've been spiritually dead, below the line and in darkness. But because of God's great love for us, Jesus entered into his creation, entered into death for us so that God could raise us with Christ. When we trust in the cross as the only way to get above the line, and be good enough to be in God's family, then we can know that we are secure as his children, having been set apart, sanctified through the cross. We see Paul mention this sanctifying work at the beginning of this letter. Chapter 1, verse 5, talks about how the Thessalonians received the gospel with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. They have received the gospel from God. They've been set apart and sanctified by him. Present, it is currently happening. We are currently being sanctified. God is at work making us more and more like Jesus, allowing us to know him more through the work of the Holy Spirit. God doesn't save us and then desert us. He gives us himself. 1 Corinthians 2 talks about how the Spirit searches and knows the mind of God and reveals that to us. Paul is exploring the sanctifying work in this chapter. Verse 8 talks about the gift of the Spirit helping us to live a holy life. And in verse 9, it talks about being taught by God. There is an ongoing encouragement to know God more and more, to live a life that pleases him more and more. It's an ongoing process of God. God is at work setting us apart to enjoy his family. And we will, it, we will be fully sanctified to God. It will be completed. We have a secure future. On a bad day, I might look inward, I might see my mess and be discouraged. However, I can be assured that when Jesus returns, I'll see him as he is and will be like him. On that day, I'll be able to fully embrace my Heavenly Father and enjoy being in his family fully. Paul talks about this hope more in the next part of the letter, uh, our future hope of being fully with God. God has, is and will be setting us apart to be with him. All three elements have nothing to do with our impressiveness. We don't meet God halfway. It was, is, and will be all God at work. And we can only draw on resources that God has provided. The girl from Latrobe that I mentioned at the start could have and maybe should have written me off as uh, too awkward or boring and gotten to know someone else another first year. But she didn't. Uh, she kept making an effort to make me feel uh, accepted and welcomed even though I kept giving her non-answers and kept putting walls up. 
This act of her accepting me before I knew how to be acceptable allowed me to be more honest, to not feel like I needed to give her the answers that uh, would win her approval. Her unconditional acceptance changed how I lived and related. Her name is Alex and we're now married. Uh, two and a half years ago, we made promises to commit to one another. I was set apart as Alex's husband. Do I now have to live in fear of Alex not accepting me? Uh, no, I trust the promises she made. But do I live to please her? Uh, yes, not how I did when we first met. I'm not trying to appease her. Instead, I lived, lived to please her from a place of freedom because I'm known and loved by her. And even more so, I'm known and loved by God. At our wedding, uh, we had part of 1 John 4 read out, uh, which says, Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Do you see how God's acceptance of us before we were acceptable should and will change how we live, how the cross shapes us to live a life of love? On the cross, Jesus, Son of God, made the ultimate sacrifice to set us apart and make us acceptable. If we know and trust in the cross, we will start to live in order to please God because we have experienced what it, is, what it is to be fully known and fully loved by God. It is important to keep in mind that sanctification is God's will and it's him doing the work as we go on to see how Paul applies what it looks like to live in a way that is pleasing to God. Paul unpacks uh, how being set apart in relationship with God will change how we think about three different areas in life in the way we think about sex, community, and work. How in each of these areas, being set apart into God's family will lead you to live a life of love that pleases God. Um, you might be thinking living a life pleasing to God is just following the rules. I think it's yeah, good to look at what Jesus, how, when, Jesus was, uh, when Jesus is asked what the most important commandment is, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbour as yourselves. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You see here that all God's commandments, rules, help us to love him more, enjoying uh, being in his family, and help us to love others. A life pleasing to God is a life of love. So Paul starts in the second half of verse 3 by saying that the Thessalonians, the Christians, should avoid sexual immorality that each of you should learn to control your body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lusts. The culture Paul was writing to, it was common practice for men to have a wife for status and children, a mistress for companionship and fun, a concubine to meet their desires, and then also prostitutes for variety. Paul is saying here, we can't do that. Uh, we are to avoid sexual immorality. We are to avoid any sexual activity outside of marriage. Why are Christians to be different in this way? We see in verse 5, Paul contrasts how the Thessalonians think about sex to the pagans who don't know God. Paul is saying that Christians aren't different because they follow rules better. 
uh, but because they know God. They've been set apart in his family. So why does knowing God make a difference to how you'll think about sex? Throughout God's word, um, God teaches us that if you want total intimacy with someone, you must have total commitment to them. God models this when he says to his people, I will be your God, I will love you and you will be my people, but you have to commit to me. There can be no other gods. Without knowing God relationally, you will not see or understand the need to have intimacy and commitment together. Why would you need to combine whole body commitment, sex, with marriage, which is whole life commitment? Instead, uh, you use people as you lust and are controlled by desires because there is something missing that we're trying to fill. However, the Thessalonians know God. Their fulfilment comes from him, so they are free to love others because they don't need to use them to fill themselves anymore. Only with God are we capable of loving others in a completely unselfish way. What about our culture? Do we use sex the same way that, as the Thessalonians? Uh, not exactly, but like the Thessalonians, sex, I think, is commonly seen as, a way, as just a way to satisfy an individual. As long as no one is hurt, sex and commitment don't need to be linked. I think this is clearest when you think uh, about the use of porn. Porn is used to completely remove commitment from sex, to access sex as a way to fulfil your lust. What is lust? Lust is a word that means over-desire. Um, and the average first exposure to porn is eight to nine years old. I think that shows that our culture does not combine uh, physical commitment and life commitment. Paul is being countercultural in this letter by saying that instead of using others as you lust, instead of being controlled by your desires, now that you know God, your experience of him, his gracious acceptance of you will lead you to live a life of love that is pleasing to him. Instead of using people, you will love them. Do you see how this changes sex and marriage? From using someone for status or pleasure to being able to see someone and say, I see what God is doing in your life and I want to be a part of that. I want to commit to honouring you, to building you up. A view of sex that combines intimacy and commitment, rather than just meeting your needs, lifts the others up, the other up and loves them. I think this also changes how we think about sex if you're single. Is sex necessary to live a fulfilled life? I think the Thessalonian culture would have said yes. I think ours says yes. But Paul says you don't need to be sexually active to have a fulfilled life. You don't need to be controlled by your desires or lusts. You have been called to live a holy life with God, to be in his family, to be sanctified and know him. Then in verse 6 to 8, there's a warning for people who are continuing to use people without repentance and still call themselves a child of God. If we use sex as a way to take advantage of someone, we will be punished. Why? Because God has called us to live a holy life, a life with him. And if you are using people to lift yourself up and meet your desires, I do not think you have truly known God, who has given himself fully to know and commit to you. In verse 8, Paul says, If you consistently live in this way, you haven't rejected human instruction, but God's instruction, who gives us his Holy Spirit. All sex outside of marriage is a way in which we use people to meet our desires 
and a rejection of God and his spirit. This is a rejection of God because we aren't trusting that he will meet all our needs, so we take it into our own hands. When Paul is talking about sexually, sexual immorality here, the main thing he has in mind is sexual activity outside of marriage, using people to meet your own desires without committing to them. But of course, unfortunately, we all know that even husbands and wives can use sex inside of marriage as a way to serve themselves rather than focusing on loving and serving their husband or wife. So what if you're here and you feel stuck in sexual sin? You might be here and addicted to porn or sleeping with your partner outside of marriage. Or maybe you are married and you're using your spouse as a way to meet your desires. Do these verses tell you that you're done, you're out, or you need to try harder and be better? Uh, not exactly. These verses say that if you're being controlled, uh, if we are being controlled by our lusts, our desires, we don't know God. So I think what we need is to know God more. The difference between the Thessalonians and the people that use sex to fulfill their desires is knowing God. How do we know God? He reveals himself through his word, the Bible, and gives us his spirit. He is the one that sets us apart. It is his will that we are sanctified. If you're feeling stuck, uh, go to him, seek him, talk to him, read his word, wrestle with your desires with him, and talk to his people, his children, those that know him as father. Because being set apart into God's family leads us to live a life, to love others in the way we think about sex. Paul then, in verses 9 to 10, talks about community, how the church has been loving one another. He even says he doesn't need to write about it because they've already been taught by God and how they've loved all of God's family throughout Macedonia. How does God teach the Thessalonians and us about love? I think we see most clearly displayed on the cross when Jesus died for us to accept us before we were acceptable. And we understand this love through the gift of the Spirit. Paul commends this church for their love to the wider community. Um, how do you think we go as a church loving one another? How do you go? This past month, uh, my car broke down, my wife's car got sideswiped, and then when we took it in to get be serviced uh, and repaired, we found out there was a lot of expensive things that needed to happen with it. Uh, and also my phone stopped working. I felt overwhelmed. However, lots of you here have shown me great love and generosity. Uh, I was speaking to a non-Christian friend this week uh, who had been struggling to get in contact with me uh, because of my phone that wasn't working. And he was uh, blown away that someone would just lend me their phone. Uh, and through that, I was able to explain why Jesus makes a difference to how people live. I'm very thankful for the love that you guys show me and each other. However, we need to read and be challenged by verse 10, where Paul says, do so more and more. As Paul encourages the Thessalonians, we can't get complacent with our love for each other because it's not about being good enough or ticking a box or getting over the line. It's about living and enjoying our new family, our new identity as God's child. This has been a 
a messy, tough year for our church in a bunch of different ways. And at times I felt caught in the middle. My people-pleasing tendencies tell me uh, not to get involved, to keep everyone happy with me, please everyone so that they might say, oh, Tim's such a nice guy, I'm glad he's around. Uh, when this is how I live, when I'm driven by people's acceptance of me, I've lost sight of the gospel, of the new identity I've been given, that I've been set apart in Christ as God's child. Uh, when God looks at me, he sees Jesus and says, this is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. I no longer need to please you, and instead I get to and I want to love you, uh, which can be messy. But being set apart into God's family leads us to love others in our new family. And I thank God for you and the way you've shown me God's love. And I do want to love you more and more and encourage you to love each other more and more. And one way that we can love each other is our attitude towards work, which Paul goes on to talk about in verse 11, saying, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life might win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. Why does Paul specifically address working here? Uh, Paul has just commended the church for the way that they're loving their new family. However, there's also a concern with that. You see, some people in the church were quitting their jobs and sitting idle uh, discussing philosophy uh, because they figured they didn't need to work because Jesus was about to come back. And they'd become a burden to the other Christians in the church who were providing for their needs. The clear application from these verses would be, if you're not working, or if you're able to work and choosing instead not to, you should start working. You should work so that you're able to love and win the respect of outsiders. However, as I was preparing and praying and thinking about my family here, I see lots of people working really hard in lots of different ways. As parents, as they study, as they manage a building project, work multiple jobs, uh, work high-intensity jobs, um, work in different areas of ministry. Uh, however, I think it's still important for us to understand and unpack what it might mean to work to love, how our work fits into a, living a life of love that pleases God. The first thing that Paul mentions about work is he says, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, verse 11. Why do most people work? I'd say to support themselves, to live a bigger and better life, to impress other people as a way to gain power. Um, our culture, I think, at the moment, is all about the grind and the hustle. Uh, Elon Musk has tweeted, or uh, whatever it's called now, um, nobody has ever changed the world on a 40-hour week. Our culture tells us uh, that we need to create who we are, change the world by what you do. So we need to keep working, not sleep, don't stop, hustle. However, Paul is saying a quiet life, not a powerful life. Uh, when you trust in the cross, it's the only way to be accepted by God. When you trust that through the cross, you are now adopted into his family, it frees you from not having to change the world, frees you from having to make yourself bigger and more powerful. It's so easy to get caught up in work, living to please our bosses, our co-workers, and winning them to ourselves. However, that's not the respect that Paul is talking about in verse 12. He tells us, um, he's telling us that by the way we live a life of love, 
that people around us should see a compelling faith. What do your co-workers, classmates, the other parents you know, the people you serve, uh, what do they see you working for? The second thing that Paul says on work is that he, uh, we should work with our hands. Um, why is Paul saying that we should all become gardeners or get in the dirt in some way? Not quite, I don't think. I think he mentions working with your hands because it was seen as, a, as physical work was seen as demeaning. However, Paul is saying that all work is valuable and important because it, all work gives us an opportunity to love and serve others. It is a way to live a life of love that is pleasing to God. A day a week, I work in a cafe. Uh, some mornings, it's a real struggle to uh, see my work there as more than just a way to pay some bills. Uh, however, when the gospel is central to how I work, I see and think about uh, a young man that comes in every day uh, because that's where he feels safe, the way that I'm able to know, welcome and love him, the way I'm able to know a much wider section of my community, and the conversations with my co-workers that I've had about why I treat people differently, the difference that Jesus makes to how I love people. Uh, God is able to use, yeah, work in a cafe, all work, uh, to love people. Why are we to work in these ways? Verse 12, Paul explains, so that your daily life might win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. What do people see when they read your life? Not everyone's going to read the Bible, but they will interact with you. What do they see when they look at the life of our church? Um, what do you do with the gospel after a Sunday afternoon? Is it present? Does it shape and motivate you as you live a life of love? Where to yeah, enjoy being in God's family more and more, being freed from lifting ourselves up and able to love others because we first have been loved. Being a part of God's family frees us from having to be the centre of our lives, from having to earn our acceptability. We are to live in order to please God, not to be a good Christian or to be acceptable to God, but because we have already been accepted. We've been sanctified, set apart to know and be children of our loving God. If you experience this, it will change how you live. By the work of the Holy Spirit, you will no longer need to use others to fulfill your desires or create identity. And instead, you can love people unconditionally because you first have been loved. Do you know this love? Have you met this relational God? Or is the God you have experienced distant, cold and demanding, a God you have to appease or hide from? If you don't know our loving relational God, I encourage you to seek him. Tell God that you want to know him. Tell someone here that you trust that you want to know God more. They might want to read the Bible with you, which is the way God reveals himself. If you do know God, this God of love, I encourage you to go deeper. It's so easy to be complacent, treating God as a box that you've ticked and get busy with the rest of your life. Trust that God is at work in your heart, having set you apart in him, and is continuing to bring you closer to himself. Uh, you can be confident and secure in being his child, and the joy of knowing him and being saved by his gospel will lead you to live a life of love 
that pleases him. Let's pray to our loving God now. Uh, Loving Father, thank you for revealing yourself as our Father, uh, for sending Jesus um, to invite us to be your children. Thank you for the way that you have called us to yourself, for the gift of your Spirit uh, who allows us to live a life of love that pleases you. I pray that you'd help us to go deeper into relationship with you uh, and to love others around us. I pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.